Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. We all know that I am obsessed with true crime. Sabrina, not so much. She tolerates my my true crime. I think she... It's going to be one of those things when she tries to have me committed, she's going to bring up my obsession with this. But I'm very excited today. We have with us Sarah Alcorn and Laura McDonald from the Ivy League Murders podcast. Welcome, ladies. Ivy League Murders, and we focus on murders that occur in, you know, with people associated with the Ivy League or academia. We do other schools that are not in the Ivy League, but we focus mainly on the Ivy League. And we look at the dark side of the privilege and we kind of look behind those walls and see what see what's there that's right yeah well i was gonna say how did you guys meet well we actually went to high school together and um but we weren't we didn't hang out and then sarah um a few years ago adopted a cat from me and that's That's random yes yeah that's random and that's the pod cat who's our our little mascot yeah <laughs> cute yeah. so sarah you you actually were in la for quite a while why and what took you back to your ivy league roots oh when i say ivy league i mean cambridge massachusetts which people who don't know is the home of the very snobby it's only hard to get into harvard <laughs> not that i say that with any bitterness as a pen grad you know, we always used to say the only hard thing about Harvard is getting in, and it takes a real effort to get kicked out of Harvard. It really does. Yeah, really, that's actually true. Yeah. And yeah. we can also say, Melissa, that we have found more murders at Harvard than all the other Ivies combined. But but also really that dropping out of Harvard is incredibly lucrative because if if you look at like Mark Zuckerberg and you look at Bill Gates. Matt Damon, who was our classmate. So Matt the Damon. Harvard dropouts are the, like dropping out is the way to go. Okay, well, good to know. Good. I didn't say dropping out. I said getting kicked out. Getting out. It's very yes. It's very hard. Once Harvard has you, they want to keep you. That's true. Right. So, just Sarah, you had a couple interesting years out in LA. What? Tell me a little bit about oh, that. Oh my god, I had so much fun in LA. So I I went out there when I was twenty two to twenty seven, and I worked. Um, I actually worked in the film business. And I did set decoration and props and I made like crazy special effects props and I had a blast, but I, but I'll tell you something, I just needed to come back to Boston and my career out there kind of pancaked a little bit. And so I fled back to Boston and, uh, and then took a little time and I, I was kind of like, what do I want to do with my life? And I was I've always been crime obsessed. And so I was like, well, you know what, maybe I can make my career in into criminal investigation basically and that's what i that's what i did okay but laura were you always crime obsessed always i was always crime obsessed and i growing up in cambridge i think you really almost you know harvard is presented as such perfection so i started to have the idea for ivy league murders a few years ago but i didn't really it just kind of sat there and I collected cases. So it wasn't until I met Sarah again and I said, you know, here's a Harvard PI. And that was the catalyst for the 
not for the podcast. It's funny, but, it's funny Melissa, because we have this contest for like, well, what, when did you read Helter Skelter? Yeah. Well, I was 13. Well, I was 14, you know, yeah. like, yeah. And have you read all of Anne Rule's yeah. anthology right, right, series? Right. Not just the big books? Right. You know, you get very competitive. Um, uh, my, my, my writing partner actually one year for Christmas gave me a book called The Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. Oh, yeah. I read it. Yeah, it's yeah. I actually, excellent. I considered getting Sarah for her birthday. She got a Hermes scarf, but I got I considered getting her a signed copy of a Vincent Bugliosi book. Oh, or, yeah. So you're 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 my sisters in crime. Yes. Okay. Why why do you think there is such a huge market for true crime? Why are we so obsessed with it? Well, I, yeah. Do you want to? Oh. I, I have some theories about this. And what's funny to me is a lot of women are are really true crime obsessed. More women. More women, I think, than men. And I think I think it's a little bit like the, the true crime trope is kind of like you have complete something completely chaotic happen that shouldn't happen. You know, and then you've got total chaos. Then it's solved. And then you go back to normalcy. And I think that's what people but I do think it's the sort of Michelle McNamara, you know, I'll be gone in the dark kind of thing. That the fascination with finding somebody who's who's elusive and and bringing them to justice and bringing normalcy back, you know. I think I mean there's so many shows now. Like I mean there's literally like Discovery ID, which is like there are networks they're all about true yes. crime and forensics and all of those things. So there's this seems to be this strange. Sabrina's like, yeah, you little sick puppies. Um, these these strange need for it and this huge consumption. And even during COVID, they brought back unsolved mysteries, which has become a huge hit again. Yeah. Well, I think we're also. I mean, I think that one thing that kind of was the catalyst for that. I mean, one, there were a few cases in Boston that to me became the catalyst for Ivy League murders and. They were, you know, Dr. Grinadier and Dr. Sharp, who were both, you know, a Yale and a Harvard professor who killed their spouses. And I think that there's really a fascination with somebody whose life looks so perfect. And I think we all aspire to think, if I had the big house, you know, we, go, we drive through those neighborhoods or we look at those schools and say, if I went to that school, if I married that person, if I lived in that house, you know, I wouldn't, nothing bad would ever happen to me. And a lot of us are almost brought up to believe that. And what we find in our podcast is that nobody's immune. And there's almost an intrigue to that. And and by the way, the doctors that we look at are really bad criminals, <laughs> Melissa. The really, mostly doctors. Oh, yeah. A lot of doctors. Like they might be like genius allergists or what have you in their field. And they're terrible criminals. Terrible they're criminals. like really, really sloppy, bad. Well, and Anne Rule wrote about a lot of them. I keep quoting her because I, you know, I consume everything. But a lot of the uh, bad guys were doctors. I mean, what was the one with the green beret? Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. Yeah. yeah. Again, doctor. Why? I was going to say, why do you think all these doctors? Princeton graduate. Princeton graduate. He was. That's right. Well, I'm well, sure they also think that they're smarter than the average person. They also have, some of them have God complexes. So absolutely. it's like, I can do whatever I want to do and get away with it. No one's going to ever suspect me. 
Yeah. And, and they tend You're to, right. they tend to really underestimate the police. They think the police are these, you know, blue collar workers who have no idea what they're doing. And they think they're way more intelligent than the police. And, you know, the police outsmart them every time. And plus, I think doctors are kind of, um, they're, they are kind of used to like the human body, like they're not disgusted by things that maybe the average civilian would well, that's be. So, that is, so dismembering doesn't bother them. Right. right. Well, they have a lower threshold to gag relax. Psychopaths have a, is it lower or higher? Higher. Uh, higher threshold to gag reflexing. So any, they've done studies with psychopaths with images and they are not is disgusted. So if you're a psychopath, it would make sense to become a doctor. What was the first case or story that brought you two together? What was your first, Ooh, this could be a good podcast or, you know, or this, this brought us together. Dr. Richard, well, we, we like met on like, we met again on like maybe like a Wednesday and we had lunch like the next day. And then we had like a, a play date to a crime scene. <laughs> okay. Wait, ro- <laughs> go backwards. How did we get from adopting a cat to having lunch? Okay. I'll buy that. We reconnected. That's great. Tomorrow let's go have lunch. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, no, no. How did you go from yeah. lunch to crime scene play date? Oh, because- I pitched her right away. I pitched her my idea immediately. I knew right when I Sarah started talking to me about crime, and I knew we were talking about the Binion trial and this trial and that trial and Clarence Darrow, and I just knew. I just said, I have this idea. You, you knew you had a partner in crime. I huh. did. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, we had grown up together. I mean, even though we didn't really know each other, we had the same, you know, we'd grown up in the same community, knew all the same people. So we had a lot in common, even though our, we were very, I had married into law enforcement, you know, Sarah had gone in a different direction. So we were- I've, I've worked on criminal defense, defense. cases for- So we were politically quite different. So it was, it really, it just, so we went out to lunch and then we just said, hey, let's go. We were very interested in this Harvard case of a doctor, Dr. Richard Sharp, who was also a cross dresser and he murdered his wife. And so we went to the crime scene like on our second date. <laughs> I, but I have, but I have to say too, that I consider myself probably the most crime obsessed person I know. And, you know, I, I, it's, I call myself a crime head. And so when I met Laura, I was like immediately, like we were just like cross, like comparing notes, like, Oh my God, what about this? What about this? Yeah. What about this? What about this? So we, so in that, the idea, the concept, for Ivy League murders kind of germinated for a little while. I listened to a ton of like true crime podcasts and got an idea of what, of how we both got an idea of how we wanted to, to do it. And then just started to lay it out. And actually it was the beginning of COVID, you know, that we were, we start, we haven't been doing it for that long. <laughs> the first episode was on April 28th. So what's your favorite case? The uh, craziest one. We differ. I like Thomas Gilbert. Um, he, he killed his father. Um, he's a Princeton graduate. Um, actually, um, Jake Gillenball is making a movie about him. Um, and it, you know, the press always says he killed his father because his allowance was cut off, but it's a much bigger story. He went to Deerfield Academy and then Princeton and Sarah and I went to Deerfield Academy and we visited Deerfield and we researched this case pretty extensively. And it, 
It was, it was just, he was a really handsome, super handsome. He, he looks like, like a cast member from Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like a Lannister, like super right. handsome. He was kind of Got like it. a guy with everything and he just threw it all away. And it was just really mental illness. The story was a lot different. That case was, was pretty interesting. Sarah's probably likes Harvard cases more. Um, well, my, my one of my favorite cases is a it was a cold case for 50 years, and her name is Jane Britton, and she was an anthropology grad student at Harvard, and so she was killed in 1969, and so Laura and I started researching this case, and I I had actually just heard about this case at a cocktail party. Somebody had you know mentioned it to me, um, and I so I we started digging into the case. And it, we found that where Jane Britton was killed in the same building that the Boston Strangler had struck one of his victims. And so we started to develop the idea. And Jane Britton was also killed by a serial killer who was active in Boston a few years after the Boston Strangler. And nobody, it's like an unheard of case. Like nobody knows about this case. And we think that the guy who was doing it was sort of emulating what the Boston Strangler was doing. And we found another cold case that we connected to it. I'm fascinated by cold cases. I was gonna say, how do you, how do you find them? I mean, first of all, how did you become a private investigator? And then secondly, how do you find your cold cases? Oh, okay. So um, we, so I'll start with the, uh, how I became a private investigator. So like I said, I got back to Boston and I really was, I took a while. It was like, what do I want to do in my life? All the stuff I read and absorb and fascinated with has to do with criminal investigations. So I actually met another Harvard grad who was a private investigator. And so I basically stalked him until, <laughs> until he hired me. <laughs> he tried to put me off. He was like, no, it's a terrible business, you know? And I was like hooked right away, you know, like he, anyway, so, um, and so that's how I became, that's how I became a private investigator. And, and is there like PI school? No. In the, <laughs> I asked the same thing when I found out. It's no, fascinating. Well, in Massachusetts, I'm sure it differs state by state, but at least in Massachusetts, you have to have kind of a mentor, a licensed mentor for three years. And then you can basically hang your own shingle and, you know, create your own private investigation business. Um, and so... Uh, that's how I, how I became a private investigator. And then the second part of your question is where do we get our cases? <laughs> where, yeah. do you get your, where do you get your cases, especially your cold cases? Oh, the cold, the cold cases. I mean, there are just, I think in, in any town, Melissa and Sabrina, there's, there are these cases that kind of really haunt people you know, and they're cold cases and they, they've never been solved. I, I'm thinking of one in Boston right now that it's kind of, I mean, in some ways, like the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, is, it, it is a cold case. It's the, the thing, what I was saying before about the whole true crime trope that there's total chaos and then it's solved when it comes to a resolution. That's the frustrating thing about cold cases. And so part of the Part of the frustration for me is that, and Laura will disagree with me because she's, you know, but it, but I disagree a lot with the law enforcement's idea of like, you know, let's not share our information because it's a cold yet open case. So I kind of feel like there should be some pushback on that. Like if you guys haven't solved it in 10 years, five years, 20 years, 
maybe open it up more to, you know, to, prof to other professionals to see if we can't start, you know, I mean, I think that's what Michelle McNamara did. And I, I don't know how she sort of pulled the strings to get them to share information with her, but look where, you know, that guy got caught. I have a question for Sarah. Do you find a little pushback in a male-dominated industry with, with private investigating? Uh, yeah, you know, Sabrina, that has been, as much as I have kind of tried to get along with my, you know, you know, Republican counterparts in, you know, my, my colleagues, um, I... And it has nothing to do with them being Republicans. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, I think it's just, I, I feel like as, I feel like as women, we just have a lot to prove, unfortunately, still. And that's what I've tried to do with my career is like, just keep my eyes on my own paper and do a good job. And kind of you're only as good as the last job that you did in many ways. So you know, I, and I, I don't really pay attention to that stuff because I feel like, I feel like it's also such a huge advantage to be a woman in this, in, in my business and in private investigation, because a women will talk to you. Women witnesses will talk to you more easily because they feel comfortable talking to another woman. A guy will talk to you because they're guys and you know, we use our feminine miles or the you know? I was gonna say, come on with the cleavage now. I, 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 I. She's got wigs. She has wigs. She's got disguises. Oh, I'll tell you guys all about surveillance. So, so cool. oh yeah, definitely. I wish we had like two hours. We but, just did know. some surveillance. Yeah, we did. What do you do surveillance on? <laughs> on a on on a on a professor who didn't like a podcast we did on him. Oh, we can't. Yeah, we we quiet. can't we can't share his name, but we we wanted to just do some surveillance and. He lives in Cambridge, so we just did some surveillance. Right, you're going to get us so in trouble. Well, no, 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 no. You can, you, I, we're the only ones here. Just remember that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you said Harvard, first of all, so it seems like Harvard, you're saying, really has the majority of the Ivy League murder. Well, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. Well, what? yeah, it's going to say, Melissa, Harvard is best at everything, including murders. So Apparently. <laughs> now, I exactly. By the way, this is probably the one time that I don't have, like, a complex being the one from Penn. Ah, um, we have so pen murders. You have one pen murder. So, well, we have others. We just haven't done them yet. Okay. But you have one big one with a tenured professor. Yes. Oh, yeah. Do tell me that. Tell me that story. Oh my oh, god. god. Yeah, Raphael Robb. Yeah. Yeah, a genius. I mean, by the way, in, in disclaimer, Penn we had a lot more drug dealers. We had Ooh. two drug rings broken up, one of which the they were going to charge the guy with a kingpin. So what we lack in murder, and of course because it's Wharton, we have more of a business aspect to our illegal activities. All right. See, I can respect that coming from University of Miami cuz that's much more of our vibe. Yeah, like a, yeah, we have a shadier vibe. I actually think I just got a book on one of the um, drug rings at UPenn, and I think I'm looking into one of those cases. I just the one from the dental school. Yes, it's uh, yeah. Doctor Death. There's one called Doctor Death. There's a few books about drug rings at UPenn, and uh, I just haven't read them yet. But I, I've 
I've got the books in preparation for cases, but Sarah, why don't you tell her about Raphael Robb and his gaming theory? Oh, yeah, yeah. So don't ask me to explain gaming theory, because even like I looked up, so Raphael Robb was a professor at UPenn. And tenured. Tenured professor, exactly. Um, very much tenured and like a superstar, meaning like the whole, he was like world renowned. And his specialty was, he was economic, in economics was gaming theory. The whole idea behind gaming theory, and believe me, I had to look up like gaming theory for dummies. Like really, you know, uh, I'm no expert, but the, the whole idea is that like two or more people can come up with different strategies. And it's kind of like a, um, it's, it's kind of like what, the various outcomes can be from the like the decision tree that happens from those decisions and it's applicable in economics it's applicable in politics it's got many different gambling i mean gambling right. exactly like poker is a perfect example because it's like if i play my two and you play your ace that that affects you know so it's right. different outcomes basically that's my super layman's description of gaming theory but better so, than i could do oh no I, I you know um the um so he he was an absolute expert genius at this and um and so Raphael rob was also you know an abusive husband and he ended up uh killing his wife and it's very graphic but he um i mean he shot her face off basically i mean he this was a brutal she was like wrapping Christmas presents at the dining room table and he blew her away. And so he, our whole premise in the podcast is like how he sort of gamed the legal system. And he did. Like he really like used his intelligence to, you know, he got a really short sentence. He totally figured out all these loopholes in Pennsylvania law. And, and again, I mean, it's-, it's He still got know, part of her estate. Yeah, I mean, really? yeah, so it was all like gaming, you know, we do see some, you know, we do see that sometimes as, you know, some of our, you know, the cases we cover because of the privilege, because of the money often, you know, and intelligence, but more money, people are really able to mount really powerful defenses and they can, they can hire the dream team, dream team and yeah. get off. And yeah. we have a case we'll be doing Alexander Pring Wilson you know, perfect, you know, prep school, uh, you know, Harvard student who killed uh, somebody from our high school. And I think he did five years. So, I mean, you just have a less, lot of, less, yeah. you know, a lot of cases like that where you just, you see the, the sentencing being, and I'm a strong law enforcement, but I'm in a law enforcement family. So I, I'm strong law enforcement, but there's definitely, you know, some discrepancies there. Well, it's a, pr a very privileged state of mind. It is. Oh, yes. And when you've been brought up in even academically, I mean, we, I think, experienced this growing up in Cambridge. When you're just brought up around people who've been taught their whole lives, they're the best of the best of the best. I mean, it's a joke in Cambridge. Like, how do you know if someone went to Harvard? You know, it's like they tell you. And like, <laughs> and they, oh, my God. I can't wait to use that. Oh. Or. Even more obnoxious than I went to Harvard is when they say, I say oh, really, where'd you go? HBS. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. HBS, I mean, Harvard Business School, HBS. 
No, but it's like you live in Cambridge and like everyone tells you they went to Harvard. It's like, there's no shock there. You know, we're not in like Ohio and you're telling me you went to Harvard. Everyone, you know, it's, it's very common. Yeah. And it's such a joke when you're from Cambridge. And I think there is that kind of elitism and, you know, specialness and people just think they're above it. And they do look down on law enforcement and think they're smarter. And, but, but a part of our podcast too, is that with the realization, like a lot of our sort of podcasting pals, you know, they are from the Midwest. They are, um, and from all different parts of the country and sometimes part of, you know, different parts of the world. But I think sometimes too, for, for people, sometimes for people like the Ivy League is like as exotic as Hawaii. So that's kind of what we're doing too, is like giving you little viewpoint views into the Ivy League and like, what's it like and little strange, strange tidbits right. of the history and uh, you know, the way it was, it was formed and all the kind of weird stuff. Like at Cornell, we talked to a guy who had gone to Cornell and there's like a brain collection on display in Cornell. Like as you walk by to go to your class, you know, it's like, it's just like, we like weird stuff like that. So, well, yeah. and the Ivies are full of weird stuff as are, by the way. And I think when you're using the term Ivy league murders, I'm, I'm guessing that you also are meaning sort of any of these big white privileged schools, including high schools like Deerfield. Yes. Um, where, you are still there or people who are affiliated with that. You go back to, um, I'm blanking on the name of the, of the girl that was murdered. And they always said that one of the Kennedy, uh, cousins did. Oh, Moxley. Moxley. Again, you know, that's that same kind of umbrella. Exactly. And it's, we'll look at cases like that. We're going to look at some cases at Eaton. There's some prep school cases we'll cover, and, you know, we always use this. We're, we're huge Dominic Dunn fans. Oh, uh, love. We love, love Dominic. And knew, I got, I knew him. He was friends with my mom. Oh, my oh. God. Like, worships, <laughs> worship him. And, you know, he always said it's much more interesting to watch Kings fall. And that's kind of like, you know, we really like, you know, we just love him so much. And we try, you know, we there's so much about him that we almost try to emulate. And it's really like looking at the dark side, you know, of, of, of privilege and power. And, you know, really we show also that certain things don't discriminate, you know, mental illness, addiction, alcoholism, greed, you know, lust, you know, they don't discriminate whether you went to an Ivy League school or you didn't go to college or, you know, we're all people, you know, and it's no, yeah. that was no dig against Ohio. I'm just saying it's common here. No, my son's at school in Ohio. So my, Yeah, my family, you know, it's common here that people know Harvard, but it's like right. you can live anywhere, you can be anywhere, doesn't matter where you went to school, we're all people and you're not, you know, the Ivy League doesn't mean, I just think people are more interested in that fall. Right, and, I, and it is used sort of as a catch-all term right. for right. a certain strata of educational um, elitism. Right. Right. Oh, yes, exactly. And, you know, just watching people, you know, and for different reasons, just kind of who have everything, throw it all away. And, and it's, you know, I think that's pretty fascinating to most of us. So why, why I want to go back to the, the Penn professor. <laughs> so I know. I See, and the other thing is, I went to Penn, I didn't even know about this. Oh yeah. oh yeah, big case. Well, a lot of these places like want to like like to keep kind of a lid on these things, Melissa. Right. Because they don't. I mean, they because just, think, just think about it. You completely blow the perfection, the the whole thought process that we are the best and we are this and we're that and you're shit. 
You're deviant too, just like the rest of the people. So what happened with this professor? Why did he blow his wife away? Because she was going to leave him and take his money. And he was, you know, he was just a really controlling man. And he had been brought up in Israel and he had then gone to USC and he just wanted everything a certain way. And he couldn't handle anything out of his control. So, but she- it, And the irony is his parents were Holocaust survivors and had taught him like the sanctity of human life and nonviolence. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's so, it, but I don't think she was, um, she was, she wasn't Jewish, and I don't think his parents ever really approved. Right, of, but he of was just—he just had a rage when she hired a divorce attorney, and that's what we see in a lot of our cases. It's just human nature. It's just rage and people without coping skills. But the rage and the hate that he shot off her face—do you oh, know it, what kind of crazed, you know, angered person that is to shoot off someone's? Well, being the frustrated criminal profiler that I am, that I should have been in a different life, that usually says that, well, I mean, with serial killers, that they know the person and it's very personal. Yes. And there's a whole bunch of psychological sort of check marks that go along with that. A psychological profile, Melissa, psychological profile. Yeah. I mean, you're you're obliterating somebody's identity. Really. Right. No. So what case haunts you guys? Oh, well, I don't get me started with the, <laughs> it's not an Ivy League murderer. She's obsessed. That's okay. That's but okay. that's okay. That's yeah, okay. We're, we're, we're kind of into a, um, a case that Sarah can tell you about because we're, it's a cold case that we're into right now. We're exploring. So Sarah. And Laura's going to have an intervention for me soon. So uh, bear with me. I'm like, no. stick to the Ivy, Sarah. <laughs> she went to Harvard and I'm, I'm, I'm the non-Harvard and I'm always like keeping her in check with the Harvard. <laughs> um, well, so the, the case, I am actually working on this case right now. It's a cold case in Boston. And there was, I don't know if you guys had heard about this. It was back in 1996 and it was a Swedish nanny who had come over as an au pair to a couple uh, in like outside of Massachusetts. A wealthy couple. A wealthy couple. And she went out partying for the summer solstice and she was found like 24 hours later and she had been, only the top part of her torso was ever found. Uh, they never found, you know, she was cut in half basically and dumped in a dumpster. And so this is a case that's 24 years old, you know, and, and still cold, unsolved. And it has a bunch, it had an, a bunch of incredible uh, suspects, but none of them panned out. And it's still a cold case. And I it would be my dream come true to, to solve this case. So. I'm constantly trying to profile the guy that, yeah. that did it. And and I can't I can't imagine that you could do that to a human being and still and not I can't imagine that that's his first or last murder. That's like an extraordinary thing to do to somebody. Mm, unless you know? it was the husband. I don't think it was the husband. <laughs> you know, no, no, but there's so many like there's so many crazy suspects in that case too. Like the the father was kind of known to be kind of creepy by other nannies. There was a guy who would go to the club that she went to and he would be in a Superman t-shirt and his dog would be in a Superman t-shirt and he would do that to like attract girls. Like there's these crazy 
really crazy side stories to the actual story. So, um, but she was just a lovely 20 year old Karina Holmer from a small town in Sweden, you know, and, and that, you know, he's still out there. I believe he's still alive and he's still, you know. Have you found other similar cases that might be linked to this particular case? Not the same MO. There was a prostitute who was killed in um, in Florida, and her, she was also cut in half and, and dumped in a dumpster. Mendez was her name. But they don't, there's not enough parallels to really, you know, totally different geography, totally different, you know, she was from sort of a different, I, there, there aren't enough similarities to really, to really pull them together. Um, so, uh, but in, in the Boston area, I think they're, we have a weird thing in this, in this town. We, we've, no, we've got like serial killer denial. I really do. <laughs> we, we do. There's a, like, we just don't cop to it. There have been these mysterious murders of people, of women in Connecticut and Western Mass. And there's, there was a guy named Lenny Paradiso who, it's like, it's almost like we don't give them the attention that, that, that it needs. And it's, well, we don't want to admit in Massachusetts that we have those type of issues here. Right. Very, That's a Harvard thing. We're yeah. very, <laughs> we're very refined here. Yes. It's a Harvard thing. It's a different and if it's not Harvard, it's Tufts or Emerson or BU or BC or yeah, you know. there's definitely a bubble of that we grew up in that is that I mean we've since left that bubble, but it is definitely an elitism that that few experience unless they it's true, but all been around it that like, this this people think that they are kind of intellectually superior. It's true, but ridiculous. The, but also like <laughs> like Boston, it, Boston is so like I. I call it like Starbucks at this point like it used to be like dirty old Boston kind of like fun and kind of sleazy a little bit and feel like everything is like so clean and like you know like <laughs> so cleaned up and like sanitized in some ways I don't know I just I like a little grit in my city so Sabrina uh, so Sabrina's heard my mom and I do this and we used to do always like could do you think you could commit the perfect crime and get away with it. Do you think, I mean, I've watched my mom and I have like, you know, totally true crime obsessed. Also our writing partner, Larry. Um, we watched every episode of law and order, every episode of like forensic files. Do you, from what you guys have learned, do you think a, is it possible nowadays to pull something off like a cult, like a, a, a perfect murder it, does that even exist? I mean, or has technology taken us so far that there's that eventually someone will be caught, usually because of doing something thoughtless and stupid? I think it's quite possible. I mean, I think you could easily push your spouse over a you know cliff. Just don't tell anyone. I mean, half of the crimes we see, it's like people tell people, people can't keep, or people don't, people act guilty. I mean, it amazes me how many of the people we cover would probably have gotten away with it if they hadn't like called their girlfriend the next day or called the prostitute that night. Like we had a case with a doctor who did that. I mean, I'm, I'm from Yale who literally called the prostitute the night of the murder. Well, he didn't admit to it, but it, I mean, it didn't play well in front of a jury that the yeah. night, the day that his wife had gotten brutally stabbed in a park, he like is calling this prostitute. 
it doesn't again doesn't doesn't look good. No, no I not think a good. bad optics. Very no. bad optics. <laughs> I think it's quite possible. Just if if you think your spouse is trying to kill you, like don't get in the hot tub with them and don't go on a hike. So <laughs> You know, you know, two ways they get you, and sometimes they don't catch these guys till they've done it more than once. It's true. I'm going to the Grand Canyon with my boyfriend <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Now I'm getting nervous. We're getting along though, so <laughs> they have a hard time. It, it is just possible. don't get too close to the edge. <laughs> yeah, pisses piss him off. But yeah. you just said something really interesting. Usually, if they've done it once, they'll do it again. Yeah. Why? But yet. Two doesn't make you like a serial killer. I don't agree with that. I think Sarah meant because of the level of violence. When you see that extreme level of violence, I think she thinks it could maybe be a pattern. Uh, most of the cases we look at, I don't think a lot of these people are would be are real threats. I mean, I'm glad they're in prison, but they I don't think that there were they were threats to that particular person, but generally not to society. Most of them. When How many times do you, when you're interviewing people around these cases? Do you hear, I never would have thought, I never would have suspected? Uh, every time, every time, except for one case, maybe. But even then, I, I think I mean, we had like a Cornell serial killer, people who was a little weird, but even he was pretty normal in college. I think most of our cases, people, people don't, you know, we're looking at a case right now at Yale and we're trying to figure out why the guy did it. He had like, no, he wasn't an Ivy Leaguer, but she was, but I mean, most of the time, that's what we hear every time. I had no idea. Most of our people, they look like the perfect family. Yeah. Everything looked perfect from outside. Except for, I mean, we mentioned Thomas Gilbert, the guy who went to Princeton, the guy who looks like the Game of Thrones cast member. I mean, I think his, I think his facade started to crack. People started noticing like really, really weird behavior you know, with him. I mean, it's I usually, it really depends. It depends, yeah. but most of, most of our cases, it's people are shocked. People are very, very shocked. It's, things look, you know, it's, it's also, if you have, you know, material things, it's very easy to mask you know, whatever your issues are with material. If, you, if, you're, if you're good looking if and you're, you're wealthy, right. you got a great house and you're driving the right, right car, you dress you know. well, it's really kind even, of, even, people, you might be getting like beaten up at home, but I mean, people may not notice as much if you have all these trappings and everything looks like it's going really well. It, and, and sadly, I think in front of juries, I think good looking people, they, they just present, you know, they, there's sort of this upset, the, this, um, I do think there's this perception. I've, I've noticed it all through my career when we've had somebody who's a defendant who's really nice looking. I had one guy who was just a, oh, you know, who, who was, but he was really a handsome guy. And he, would, life, he, would, he would always get like female jury members and they, you know, you always got to quit Well, it. I mean, look at, look, at, look at people write to these killers. I mean, that's not a new phenomenon. Right. I think people are, you know, a fascination. Yeah. That are commitment issues when you're dating someone who's in prison. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. That is real commitment issues. Yeah. Um, That's a whole other episode. Exactly. This has been fascinating. Sabrina's just giggling and laughing because she's like, she's like, I guess. Wow. 
Yeah. Yep. We hope everyone will tune into Ivy League Murders and check out our podcast. And yeah. I will be for sure. I'm happy to be one of your famous alum next time you do something on Penn. Oh, you yes, bet. We absolutely. have something coming and up. Well, wow. yeah, you now have basically confirmed for Sabrina that we're all insane. <laughs> right, Sabrina? Yeah, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Yes. No she's doubt. Just, she's just shaking her head going, I'm not even jumping into this mm-hmm. fray. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us.